HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by the Museum of Food and Drink, sparking curiosity about food with exhibits you can eat. For more information, visit mofad.org. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. 96, 97, 98, 99, 100. Tech Bytes is 100 today. Hello, hello, Heritage Radio Network listeners tuning in from 65 countries around the world. That's amazing to me. And perhaps even more amazing is that today is the 100th episode of Tech Bites, the weekly show. Ooh, Tech Bites. The weekly show on the Heritage Radio Network where we talk to influencers and innovators in the food tech space. Wow. And we've been doing that since January of 2015. This is episode 100. And we decided to do something a little bit different today. And that was to bring on Heritage Radio host Carrie Diamond of Radio Cherry Bomb and have her guest host the episode and interview me. Carrie, thank you so much for coming out today. This is very exciting to have you. Thank you. I'm, I'm super excited to be here. 100 is a big milestone. It is. It's Congratulations. a centennial. It's gone by very quickly, though. They all kind of blur together. Well, life just goes by quickly, I find, these days. So, uh, But January 2015, I should have done some homework and looked at what was going on. We had a different president, that's for sure. Yes, we did. I s- <laughs> <laughs> when I was coming in um, on the L train this morning, I was listening to episode one, just to sort of see what that was about. I haven't listened to it in a long time. It was kind of a little bit horrifying, as you can imagine, listening to yourself doing your first radio show. But I was also um, really happy that you were coming on such a big news day, um, because today is a big news day and a lot of people are going to be watching TV. Um, 
and just thinking of all the very different things that are happening like right now. Oh my gosh. Trying to listen to live radio on the subway this morning was a little challenging. We kind of, we have wireless sort of intermittently. Yeah. Intermittently. That's a good word for it. And so today is really just your, also your heritage radio day because your show is on later today. Cherry bomb is broadcast at one o'clock on Thursdays at 1 PM. Exactly. Um, I'm the host of radio cherry bomb. We hit our hundredth earlier this year and it, 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 it was a big deal. You know, it's at, I don't know if it's necessarily as big a deal to the audience as it is to the hosts and the people behind the scenes. But um, it's a definite milestone, and you just feel such a nice sense of accomplishment. So congratulations again. Thank you. And I'm very excited that we're turning the tables today, and I get to interview uh, you um, because you. I listened you know, to your show and have heard so many of your interviews, and you don't really talk that much about yourself. So today I'm going to put you on the hot seat and you have to talk all about yourself. Well, I think you, you also come out of journalism um, and you have that in your background. So you can't even let me interview you. I need to, I need to cut, I need to stop you right now because this show (laughs) is all about you. I was, I was going to explain why I don't talk about myself. You even sometimes, this is your life. (laughs) (laughs) You even forget to say your name sometimes when you do your show. Did you even know that? No. Yes. Wow. Yes. I'm going to have to take that's notes. How, that's how modest you are. This is going to be really helpful for <laughs> notes for, for the next hundred episodes. <laughs> so, Dave, when Jennifer does not say her name, you have to uh, jump in. and Yeah, she has to put a quarter in the jar. And remi- <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. All right. So, Jennifer Leutzi, this is your life. Ooh. You were born in? Honolulu, Hawaii. That's amazing. What was life like in Hawaii? It's a it's an idyllic place to grow up and you don't really realize that while you're growing up and you don't realize that also I think until you move away from it. It's really in the middle of nowhere and the quality of the water and the air and the sun and just your physical environment is so just fresh that when I go back there now, I have a noticeable difference in the way my body feels. It's just you're happy and you're outside and sun. And it's kind of not like the United States because it's so far away and it has so many different cultures. It's kind of its own uh, entity in terms of the culture and the people and the language and the food. And it's also very um, sort of family and community-based where... Um, you know, oftentimes you have two or three, you know, generations living together. Events are always two, three, four generations. I spent, you know, we, I grew up next to, living next to my grandparents. I spent as much time, you know, with them as I did with, you know, my parents, extended families, big barbecues at the beach. So it really um, has a very, very different and unique feeling to, you know, being on the mainland or being in New York where things are very, much more, I think, segmented and much more focused towards um, adult and business life versus like childhood and family life. And you were uh, friends with Obama growing up? Of course. <laughs> well, actually, Obama went to Punahou, which is one of the top, top uh, private schools in Hawaii. Um, and I went to Kamehameha, which is the other top private school in Hawaii. And the difference between the two of them is that Kamehameha was... Um, is on land from the original monarch family in Hawaii. And so they left money and land to build a school for Hawaiian children. So in addition to your academic testing that you have to do to get into kindergarten, 
you have to prove that you are a certain percentage Hawaiian to go there because they also teach um, Hawaiian culture and history in addition to the academics. So you and Obama were rivals from an we early were, age. That's what you're telling Punahou, us. He went to Punahou, which was the school that the missionaries started for the uh, kids who couldn't get into camp. So you're saying you went to the cooler school. That's I went to saying. the more Hawaiian school. I love the way you say Hawaii. Hawaii. Yeah. So nice. All right. Next uh, stereotypical Hawaii question. Poke. Love it. Hate it. Love it. Love it. I don't understand the trend here and now. I just don't get it. And to be quite honest, I'm a little fearful of eating raw fish in some weird stand on the Lower East Side. Can you, uh, as, a, as an authentic Hawaiian, can you, say, can you tell us what poke actually is? Poke is basically cubes of raw tuna mixed with uh, soy, mustard, maybe some sesame, maybe some green onion, and in a bowl. And just eaten kind of like that. And then often rice is the staple. You would have maybe some hot white rice with that on the side. I'm a little upset about the poke trend just because I, we need to be eating less tuna, not more tuna. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you, having grown up somewhere like Honolulu, have a uh, maybe bigger sense of responsibility when it comes to the environment and the oceans than maybe someone who didn't grow up surrounded by the oceans. The thing is that, you know, like anything, poke comes from Hawaii because it's a small island and you eat the things that are around you, which is primarily water. So a lot of the things you eat come from the ocean. And then to your point, when you extrapolate them and they become a trend and then you have this sort of worldwide demand for inventory that's not realistic, it's kind of terrible. And it's also never, ever going to be poke from Hawaii. Exactly. Ever. it, It doesn't matter. So... Yeah, All mean, those poke restaurants are going to be closed, and and if if they even last twenty four months, it'll be a miracle. I'm really very particular about where I eat raw fish, just because <laughs> of you know different quality issues. And in all honesty, I've walked by some of the pokey places, and it, to me, it's the equivalent of like eating sushi from the Dwayne Reed or the drugstore or the gas station. You know, it's Did kind you of in the same on my genre. Instagram when I I there was I walked past the Dwayne Reed and it was like. They had a sign that said fresh sushi Probably. and I took a picture and put it on my Instagram. And I think it was like my most commented upon Instagram. Um, I'm writing down all the Jennifer Leuzzi rules because Jennifer, <laughs> I don't know if you know this, but that's the second rule you told me today. Be particular about where you eat raw fish. Yes. Write that down, kids. That's a good life rule. The other one was always go to the bathroom before you start your show. Yes. And I established a rule yesterday and Hester, uh, who's hanging out with us at Cherry Bomb these days is in the back in the studio. Um, She knows that I announced this rule yesterday. Always go to the bathroom before you get on the subway. Yes. Because there was a complete subway failure the other day. The F train stalled for, (laughs) I, I don't even know why I'm laughing. It's a miracle I wasn't on that train. The F train stalled for an entire hour. And people Without lost their minds. Electricity You're right. was the key. Lost their minds, stripped down whole nine yards. It so, was dark and steamy and yep. it was like a blackout. So rule two, don't get on the subway if you have to go to the bathroom. Uh, rule, I definitely follow that rule. Good. good. Religiously. Everybody should now. Rule, the next rule I made up was always make sure your phone is charged yes. before you get on the subway. In, in life, just generally also. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Which brings me back to <laughs> what the show is actually about. Tech Bytes. Yeah. Why did you decide to focus on technology? 
So when I decided that I wanted to have a podcast on Heritage Radio Network, the first thing I did was start to survey the shows that were on the air. They really wanted to do a podcast, and I was less specific about what that topic would be. And my first idea was, oh, I'm going to do books. But there was already a lot of book coverage happening. And I realized that there was not a show about technology. There was the Dave Arnold show, uh, Kitchen Matters, Cooking Matters, uh, which is about cooking tech and technology. But there wasn't anything about digital app and all these kinds of things, which were really sort of starting to sweep the industry. So I pitched Tech Bytes as a show to fill that you filled, the, you filled the void. Exactly. Martha Stewart is on the cover of the latest issue of Cherry Bomb, and her big advice was for people trying to figure out what to do with their lives, fill the void, find the void. So that's what you did. Um, why this burning desire to have a podcast? Well, a long time ago, I had a blog, and it was called Snack. It's still up in an archive sense. And it was 2005, and I was one of the first restaurant industry bloggers ever. And at the time, I was working as a freelance writer for magazines and newspapers, a lot of print publications. Such as? Name drop um, for us. Bon Appetit, Town and Country, Singapore Straits Times. No. I did all, yeah, really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I did all of the uh, restaurant opening and restaurant coverage for the New York Sun, which doesn't exist anymore. And, but the blog was the place where I wrote in my own voice. I wrote about stories and things that were interesting. I wrote about industry news. And because it, the technology was new, it was, you had so much freedom. And it was a very exciting moment in time. It was really the beginning of blogging, the beginning of independent journalism like that, the technology. And it was a lot of fun. And it hit a very, very nice sweet spot of being like just on the wave. And I stopped writing... Um, as a journalist when I went into advertising. And then a few years ago, I really started feeling like I wanted to get back to writing. And maybe I would blog again. And I looked at a lot of the online platforms. And there are a lot of amazing things out there, like Medium is fantastic. There's still blogging platforms. But they were missing that very sort of current uptrend element to it. And it wasn't really satisfying in the same sense and I continued to look at different media, and I landed on podcasting. So this is back in 2014, so three years ago. And podcasting was still, you know, you know, you have a transition of radio into the podcasting format. So you have this sort of talk radio or AM radio, NPR radio porting over to a podcast. So you have that, but then there was this whole new genre of actual podcasting, which was very different tech... In- tech-enabled. Um, and in a strange way, the fact that people listen, usually on headphones, it's very intimate, and you actually hear the people's voices, which we don't that much anymore. You and I had a little uh, pregame chat the other day, and when you were talking about blogging and then transitioning into podcasting, I really had never thought before that podcasting is the new blogging. It is. It yeah, is because a lot of I, people I talk that. about how blogs are dead. I don't know whether you believe that or not. Mm, I don't think they're dead because they're out there and they're you know words online and as a as a medium. I think they're just commonplace and and part of the digital media ecosystem now. I don't think they're dead. I think they're there. I just think they're not 
moving the needle in terms of being revolutionary or super innovative. But all you would need would be to have some amazing person start a blog and have it get a lot of traction to have a blog resurgence. But now we have Instagram, which we didn't have before. And Facebook is just basically, you know, on steroids now and all those kinds of things. So we have so many more digital outlets to be expressive um, that have sort of given people options in addition to blogging. All right, let's jump back into your early days again. Uh, Why did you leave uh, Honolulu? Well, I left because I was a child and my parents moved and I kind of had to go with them. (laughs) I was in. That's usually uh, how it works. Yeah, you know, it's sort of like point the, you know, pass the buck and point the finger and say, blame it on them. Where did you wind up? East Lansing, Michigan. Oh, wow. Why? My parents married, met and married in college as undergrads, as you often did back then, and um, decided to go to graduate school. And we moved to East Lansing because they were in grad school at Michigan State. And what was that like for you as a kid? That was the beginning of basically being a foreigner in your own country. Because when we moved from Hawaii to Michigan, we lived in married student housing with all of the international families, basically. And Hawaii is very different from the mainland U.S., and it's extremely different from Michigan. And people thought we were Indian from India or maybe from South America or anywhere but Hawaii and certainly anywhere but the United States. And people would ask, is this your first time in America? How old were you? I was in third or fourth grade. Oh, wow, that's tough. I mean, I remember my parents moved to a fair amount, but we always stayed in the same place. I'm from mm-hmm. Staten Island, but each move was just traumatizing. so traumatizing yeah. as a kid. So I can't imagine what it was like for you at that age. People, you know, is this your first time in America? Oh, you're from Hawaii. Do you have cars there? Did you wear shoes? Do you have TV like us? And then, you know, just everything that is part and parcel of perceived as being somebody actually foreign, not even... American and different, but actually foreign. Even and, and even though you would say, because it's a big, big, important piece of Hawaiian history, Hawaii actually is the United States. How did that affect you as a kid? You, one, appreciate where you're from in a very, very different way. So as I said at the beginning of the show, you kind of don't realize like how, what, how great something is or the really amazing pieces of it until you go away from that. So that sort of intensified my my love for where I come from. And it also made me really identify in a much more significant way as being Hawaiian very strongly because apparently being Hawaiian's very different from being American. <laughs> Did you feel exotic? Did you feel like an outsider? Did you have a hard time fitting in? Hard time fitting in an outsider more than exotic. I don't think when you're in grammar school, the word exotic <laughs> even sort of like comes to pass. Or special. You know. Because you can feel yeah, special as a kid. Yeah. You can no. be made to feel special. Yeah, it was really outsidery. Yeah. And we moved quite a bit, um, different neighborhoods, different houses, um, different schools, you know, almost kind of different schools every year or two. So it was a perpetual cycle of always being new and being foreign in America. To this day, I mean, um, in many ways, people will come up to me on the street and start speaking a language at me. Really? Yeah. 
And I'll just say, I'm sorry I don't speak Greek, Spanish, Israeli, Italian. But it's, it's their lucky day if they start speaking to you in French. <laughs> exactly. Because you are fluent in French. That almost never happens, though. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's talk about that. Um, so fast forward. How did you wind up in France speaking French and going to culinary school? I had gone to France on a family trip when I was in high school and just adored it. And prior to that, I was one of those kids who spent a lot of time reading. And I was also just completely in love with the whole Fitzgerald, Hemingway, expatriate Americans in Paris. Audrey Hepburn. All of that. You have very Audrey Hepburn eyebrows, by the way. Thank you. You have great eyebrows. Don't touch them. Oh, really? Yeah. Like almost at all. You're telling me personally, don't touch your no, eyebrows. That's, maybe that's another. That's another rule. Don't oh, don't touch your don't eyebrows. Right. Over do anything on your eyebrows. I always tell that because you know I used to be a. I don't want to say beauty journalist. I was a beauty editor, and whenever someone's like, "Ooh, what's your beauty advice?" I'm like, "If you have a teenage daughter or a young girl, don't touch your eyebrows." Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yes. We're on the same page with that one. I'm writing down all your rules. See. Excellent. Don't touch. See, we need a blog. We're going to need a blog after this. (laughs) Or this could just be a really long Instagram post. Um, All right. So uh, you and your perfect eyebrows head to to France. So I head to France because I had loved it and I didn't have time to do a semester abroad. And I just really wanted to go. And I had studied broadcast journalism in school and had done, uh, learned to edit video and things like that at the time. And I had worked at CNN. And Wait, did you do college radio? No, I didn't do college radio. I was broadcast. Okay. I was TV. Okay. I was Still, on camera. I feel like at college, all the all the kind of communications nerds. Yeah. No, we had a we had a st- weekly stayed together. You know, we had a weekly broadcast video news show. And when I was at CNN at the time, it was so commercialized that it was very disenchanting for someone who was coming out of the ivory tower of worse you know, than CNN journa- is now. Journalism, you know, it was very CNN today must seem like. Uh, yeah. Well, it was how the decisions got made. It was the behind the scenes because I was on the news desk and it was sort of, you know, how things were di- being covered based on, you know, news, but mm-hmm. also sponsors and demographics and all that kind of thing. So I became very disenchanted with news and decided that documentary film was my calling. So I moved to Paris because I had a job at UNESCO in the documentary film department that one of my professors had helped me get. And I moved to Paris and I had taken two years of, of college French. I didn't really know anybody. I didn't really speak French, but I had always cooked. I grew up cooking. I was, you know, doing the whole poached salmon dinner parties in college and to the point of, you know, Sabrina. Wait, that is not a normal college thing. No, it's not. I was not, not hosting yeah. poached salmon dinner parties. No, but I, I just loved cooking. And so I thought I'm in France, I'm in Paris I'll go to cooking school to pass the time while I'm waiting for my job to start. And the classes were taught in French, and I'll work on that, and I'll meet some people. And so I did that, and it was just fascinating, and I did well, and people thought I worked at a restaurant in New York, and I said, no, I just cook at home. And I was encouraged by some of the instructors to actually, like, literally go work in a kitchen, and can you take the heat? And so one of them um, helped me get a job at a one-star Michelin uh, bistro in Pal- the Palais Royal neighborhood of Paris called Chez Pauline. And I went to go work on the fish line as a lowly, lowly, you know, I was pro- probably like Comey number two or something like that. What does Comey number two do on the fish line? Uh, you crack 
cases and cases of langoustines. <laughs> you shell Saint-Jacques. You pick perfect pieces of perfectly round pieces of watercress leaves and, I mean, all of that kind of stuff from, like, 8 o'clock in the morning until midnight, six days a week. And what was the kitchen like? Was it one of those stereotypical French kitchens where the chef screams that you see in movies? He was a little bit of a screamer. It was very uh, male-dominated, of course. And, you know, you worked so long and so many hours, and it was kind of very quiet in, in many ways because you're just working all the time, and people are tired, and they're working. But I was the only American and the only woman. You were and, the only woman mm-hmm. in that kitchen. And being an American means you don't know how to cook, for sure. And being a woman means you don't know how to cook, for sure. So being an American woman, it was like the worst possible thing you could be from one point of view. You were a, low, you were a lower life form than those poor escargot that they were stuffing with butter yeah. and uh, I was actually herbs. surprised later in hindsight that I got to work on the fish station because technically I probably should have been in like cold appetizers or dessert prep, um, which I eventually did uh, rotate into that department later on. But now I know that, you know, wow, that was actually pretty good. I was on the fish line. And what did happen, though, was I was learning French. And in the kitchen, there's a lot of utensils and equipment and things that you've never seen before. And you certainly don't learn the words for in your second year of college French. And so I would hold something up and say, you know, like a, a, a grater. And I would say, oh, what's, what's the word for this? And they would say, oh, that's a piece of shit. And I'd go, oh, okay, is that le piece of shit or la piece of shit? Is that masculine or feminine? And they'd be like, le. And I'd be like, okay. And then I had made some friends outside of the kitchen. And I would go to someone's house for the, you know, super classic and as good as advertised family Sunday lunch. You know, they have that sort of large late lunch, early dinner thing. And I'd be at the table and I would say, oh, you know, like, could you pass me the piece of shit? And people would like, look at me. I'm, I'm sorry, what did you say? And I said, oh, did I say la? I meant le. It's masculine, right? And then someone would lean in and say, um, oh, you were hazed. That's a salt shaker. Mm. And I was like, oh. <laughs> oh. And that was actually something that happened in every kitchen that I worked in. Well, I'm, I'm guessing at the time you would have been hazed in a similar way in an American kitchen, but, uh, but yeah. that, that does sound like a unique experience. We are going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we are going to talk more with uh, Tech Bytes host and founder, Jennifer Leuzzi, on the uh, occasion of the 100th episode. We'll be right back. Thank you. 
Hi, I'm Dave Arnold, the host of Cooking Issues on the Heritage Radio Network. We all know and love Chinese takeout dishes like General Tso's chicken and egg rolls. But here's the thing. Even though we call it Chinese food, it's not like the food you'd find in China. What's the story behind this cuisine? And how did it become so popular that you can find a Chinese-American restaurant in nearly every town in the country? The answers may surprise you. Visit the Museum of Food and Drink in Brooklyn and see our newest exhibition, Chow, Making the Chinese-American Restaurant. Chow engages visitors with compelling accounts of how Chinese immigrants overcame racism and created Chinese-American cuisine. Discover the science behind the flavors of your favorite takeout dishes, feast on rotating tastings developed by the country's most talented Chinese-American chefs, and try your hand at writing your own fortune, which will be baked into actual cookies by a 1,500-pound fortune cookie machine. But what better way to learn, connect, and eat? You can visit Chow at the Museum of Food and Drink on Fridays through Sundays from noon to 6. Tickets and more information can be found at mofad.org. Hi, I'm Carrie Diamond, host of Radio Cherry Bomb, the show about women and food on Heritage Radio Network. Tune in on Thursdays at 1 p.m. to hear interviews with the most interesting women in the world of food. Support our show and all of Heritage Radio Network's programming. Go to heritageradionetwork.org and click on the beating heart to donate. Hi, everybody. You are listening to Tech Bites with Jennifer Leuzzi. I am not Jennifer Leuzzi. I am Carrie Diamond, host of Radio Cherry Bomb. But today is the 100th episode of Tech Bites. So we have turned the tables on Jennifer and I am guest hosting so that we can learn more about the woman who founded this show uh, and hosts it every week. So Jennifer, welcome back to your own show. Thank you for being here. And while I was listening to the break and the drop, you have such a nice radio voice oh, also. Thank you. But this is all about you. Yeah. So we are talking about you. And I want to go back to where we left it off. Uh, you're being hazed in the French kitchen. Yeah. It was the early 90s. There were no women. Not really. No. In the kitchen. Mm. You were an American woman, which is even worse uh, to the your French colleagues back then. Um, did they break you? Did you cry? No. You never cried. No. Well, one of my rules is there's no crying at work. <laughs> that is not one of my rules. <laughs> you know, I mean, you could cry at work, but like cry in your office with the door closed or in the bathroom or while you're walking around the block. I mean, you, you can have those emotions and things like that, but do not cry in front of the people you work with, work for, or who work for you. See, that can only come from someone who doesn't cry naturally. Perhaps. I'm, I'm a big crier. I will cry at the drop of a hat. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean. Tough. But I am glad you didn't cry in that kitchen. No. Because when you were talking about that, I thought of Charlotte Juckman's great book, uh, Skirt Steak, and the uh, subhead. Um, women chefs on standing the heat and staying in the kitchen. Mm -hmm. So you you stayed in the kitchen for a while. I did. You know, I had a piv I I had a pivotal moment in that first restaurant, Chez Pauline, where I had been on the fish station for however long it was and watching all the plates and everything. And the kitchen was very small, and the chef would stand at the pass, which is where you put the finished plates, and the chef looks at them before the waiters pick them up to take them into the dining room. And the chef calls the orders as they come in and calls the, the plates to be put up on the pass because everything sort of goes in sequence throughout the course of your meal. And the chef of my fish station, because each station has a person who's in charge, the kitchen, if you don't know, is set up like the military, it's brigade system. So the chef de partie of the fish line 
turned to me one night and said, the next order is yours. And I was like, okay. <laughs> Completely unprepared for it. Had never been discussed. Never, you know, I had just been watching and helping prep all of the elements. And so the next order that came was, uh, you know, an order for four, you know, two langoustine, a crab, and a whatever. And I said, okay. And I put my saucepans on the stove and started putting everything together. And I assembled the plates and I made them and I put them on the pass. And the chef just kind of, you know, was, and they all were just watching me, you know, without really talking. And a lot of, I remember sort of just, you know, that gaze of like looking down at you, sort of like, hmm. And nobody said anything. Nobody made a move to do anything. And I, I put my plates up on the pass and the chef looked at me and he looked at the plates and then he like made the smallest nod of his head, and, and then the waiters, he smashed and all the plates. No, the, the waiters ground. picked no. him up and took him out into the dining room. Trying to add some drama, Jen. Well, I was <laughs> amazed. I was like, "This is amazing." There are four people sitting in the dining room of this restaurant who are now paying, you know, like fifty bucks a pop for something that I made. And there was this really strange, exhilarating feeling about it that I just really loved. And I was supposed to go and, and have this job at UNESCO. And I wound up calling my parents and saying, I'm going to cook. I'm not going to go to UNESCO. And they were sort of like, excuse me, what? You have a double major from NYU? And you're going to what? You're going to be like a cook? You're going to be like a short order cook? Like what? what? And so they weren't really... Uh, thrilled or understanding or, you know, comprehending what was happening. But I never went to UNESCO. And that was a moment where I was like, I'm going to cook for a while. And I wound up, I was supposed to be in Paris for a year doing documentary film. And I stayed for three and cooked. Wow. Did your, did you feel your status in that kitchen change no. after that? Mm -hmm. Oh, mm. Mm -hmm. I mean, I didn't have any status. So maybe, uh, I mean, it was fine. It wasn't really terrible. I mean, I was in places where they were kind of more terrible than that later on. Um, so it's maybe neutral. Maybe I went from nothing to neutral. So yes. Um, but then there was also, there was maybe a little bit of a break point where, um, you know, basically people in the kitchen would split into either, you know, kind of like being nice and helping you out and eventually wanting to date you or just like ignoring you and kind of making your life terrible. So at what point did you decide cooking was not for you? I had been working at a two-star Michelin place, and that was a lot of work. Um, get in at 8 in the morning, you know, leave at you know, 12, 1 o'clock at night sometimes if you're working dessert and you have to, they call it standing guard, to like wait for the final orders. Um, six days a week, you get one day off. I was living just outside Paris at the time. I would sleep on the subway on the way in. I would sleep on the way home. You know, you get a small break in the afternoon, you know, of maybe two hours if you finished all your stuff. And it was really, it was hard. I mean, it's physically demanding. It's, you know, kind of mentally demanding when you're doing your job, plus kind of dealing with all the other stuff. And, you know, that whole experience definitely changed my career track and was pivotal in that I had sort of discovered this whole food world and you know, really loved it and enjoyed it and the cooking and the different things and where things come from and, you know, the ideas and the chefs and all of that. But I had sort of reached the point where I thought, you know, it's time for me to go back to New York and, 
I, I'm maybe going to get out of the kitchen now because I was just... Why was that? Physically tired. Yeah. And maybe wanted to, you know, go out and then see what else I could do with it, with cooking and, and with food. And I never uh, went back to work in a kitchen after that, but I did over the years, um, you know, in different moments when I was transitioning, you know, from one job to the next, I would do work as a, as a chef for catering mm-hmm. companies. And this was the mid-90s? Yeah. I mean, there there really were so few female chef role models mm-hmm. at the time. Yeah. Did that impact you at all? You know, it probably did without my realizing it. Um, you know, I had I did a show last week with women CEOs and founders in the tech world to sort of do a, you know, state of the union, what's happening on the front lines. And two of the women, you know, said over and over again, uh, you know, that, you know, women's community is so important because if you can't see it, you can't be it. And I had never heard that before. And I thought that was very interesting, especially coming from a group of people who are making their living by creating things that don't exist. So they, they definitely have the, the mind space and the bandwidth to create something unknown. But in terms of a role model for a job or your life, if you can't be it, you can't see it. So when I came back to New York, if I was going to work in a restaurant, like I would have wanted to go work at Boulay. Or, you know, all the top places were, you know, men's kitchens. And to your point, there weren't. I mean, even Martha was very, you know, to look at somebody who would be a role model, even in the food media space, she was very nascent at that stage also. So if there had been like a Dominique Crenn for me to go work for, maybe maybe it would have been different. Mm-hmm. You know, we had Jody Adams, the, the chef from Boston on our show, and she has said that a lot over the years. If you can't see it, you can't be it. And, you know, I think a lot about the mentor-mentee thing, but it, it goes so beyond that to exactly what you said. You know, I think, I don't know your politics, Jennifer, but I, I think that's why Hillary Clinton resonated for so many of us, because it's it's that same thing. If you can't see it, you can't be it. And, you know, we haven't seen a female president yet no. in the United States. No. We hadn't even seen a, a major party candidate. No, so, and we, but we see, we see women leading government in other countries. Mm-hmm. So we have, you know, it's, it's not even that it's going to be the first one ever in the world. It's, we're looking for the first one in the United States, which is also very different. All right. Next part of your life. So you've had a very interesting career in advertising, marketing, and public relations. Mm. How did you make the jump? How and why did you make the jump into that field? So the PR piece came because basically, the, you know, I, I, when I came back from Paris having cooked, I did a bunch of different things, and I wound up going to work at D'Artagnan for Ariane Daguin. Tell everybody is, what D'Artagnan is. D'Artagnan is the number one uh, purveyor of foie gras, American foie gras in the United States. And Ariane comes from a... Uh, restaurant and food family from Gascogne in France, and she came to... There's actually a great evolutionaries uh, episode with her to learn really about her story, but she basically uh, brought foie gras to the United States in its fresh form, and the first foie gras farms in, I think it was 1985 when she started. And she's been a huge force in the food world, um, in the French uh, community, in the women, you know, food business sense, and she's really a very uh, dynamic, adventurous, bold, uh, fun uh, figure in the, in the food world. And I went to work for her 
and I spoke French, and I knew how to cook, and I basically did everything that she did. So I dealt with all her clients who were the top French chefs. So I got yelled at on a daily basis by Andre Soltner at Lutesse and Christian Delouvre, who was at Les Celebrités. And what would they yell Boulay. at you about? It's late. It's not right. It's not perfect. It's not this. It's not that. And then you let them yell at you and you say, we chef. And then you say, same thing tomorrow. And they say, yes. And then you hang up and because all a chef wants to hear is we chef. Exactly. So I would we chef, we chef. But because it was a small company, I and I knew how to cook. I did research, I did, you know, R&D on new products and I became our USDA expediter. I did packaging, I did the press kits and I wound up creating a little PR department and becoming like the PR and marketing person there. Basically reverse engineering PR and marketing based on what I knew as a journalist. And I was there for a couple years and did a lot of like crazy things like going down to Washington and arguing a case with the USDA to create a new food category, which was duck pastrami. Because <laughs> there was no poultry pastrami thing in that category. It was a whole process. I mean, it was kind of weird, but it was kind of cool. <laughs> it, is, it is a little random. I'll give yeah. you that. And so, you know, when I was starting to outgrow that job, I said, you know what, I'm going to go do restaurant PR because I had had all that experience and I basically knew most of the, I knew, you know, all the chefs. And uh, so I left and I started a very small boutique PR company, JKL Media Works, and I did chef and restaurant and lifestyle PR. Around what year was this? 80, or 97? Wow, okay. So just to take everybody back to 97, that was really before the whole food thing exploded. Yeah. I mean, there were like, when you were a publicist, you were sending faxes to a list of about 40 people. It was print. There was really, I mean, Epicurious already existed, but the websites, all of that was very nascent. It was still very much driven by newspapers and the monthly magazines. It was gourmet, food and wine, art culinaire, you know. New York Times still, all of that. And I remember the big, big revolution was when I got a my Dell computer and I got the fax modem program where you turned your mailing list database into an ex- basically an Excel sheet and then your computer would call and send the oh, faxes. I'm, I'm, I'm in pain just thinking about those days. <laughs> A lot's changed, and tech has gotten so much better, thank goodness. I know. It's um, amazing to right. think about. So you did that for a while, mm-hmm. and then, and you're still doing it kind of today, Yes, right? well, what happened was I was doing that for a while, and two things happened. 9-11 in 2001 happens, and that basically decimates the restaurant and the hospitality industry in New York City, and... Basically, you know, services like external PR agencies were just things that people could not afford anymore. I mean, re- hotels at one point were at yeah, 20% capacity in New York City. And so not only was New York City itself suffering, but there was that ripple effect that lasted for a long time of people not wanting to get on airplanes and travel and all that kind of stuff. So economically, the industry was really suffering. And I was also having a a break point of how to expand really successfully because most of my clients just wanted me to come and do the, you know, with them. So it was very hard to duplicate myself in many ways. And I couldn't figure out how to solve that. 
But simultaneously, one of my clients at the time was the New York Times four-star restaurant Lespinas, which doesn't exist anymore. And the chef was Christian Delouvre, who was my very, very first client ever. And um, he wanted to write a book, and he wanted me to write it with him. So we wrote his cookbook together, and that was getting ready to come out. And it seemed like it was a good time to transition. So I said, you know what? I have a book coming out. My name's on the cover. I have an ISBN number. I know a lot of the editors. The industry's really changing and suffering. I'm going to close my PR shop and transition into being a writer. And so I did that, and I was a writer, freelance writer for a while, and then wrote for Epicurious Online, which was fun, and wrote a daily column that was very blog-like, and then became a blogger. And then had an opportunity to do, uh, there was an agency, an ad agency that was doing a project for American Express, building an online community around restaurants, and they were looking for a creative consultant. And so they called me in, and I did that project because I was writing online. I had this aura of being digital. Because I had been in PR, I understood that. Because I had been in journalism, I understood that. And I knew the restaurant industry and the, and, and the people very well. So I did that job as a creative consultant. And then the creative director I worked for there ultimately called me later and said, come and you know, be a creative director on my team. And so I went to work at a you know, Madison Avenue agency as a creative director copywriter on completely non-food-related accounts. So I did commercials you know, for Nationwide Insurance with Dale Earnhardt Jr. And I worked on Land Rover and you know, all kinds of things. And, and that took me out of the food community for a while because advertising is very, you know, also grueling and hour intensive and, and things like that. And so then I started the wanting to have the, the blog was sort of me kind of circling back and kind of coming out of the advertising and the marketing space and wanting to, I think, come back to my, you know, my roots in some ways and come back to that community and, and see what's going on. Jennifer, just hearing you talk about all these different parts of your life, whether it was like as a young kid moving from Hawaii to East Lansing, moving to Paris, not knowing anyone, not really speaking the language, picking up that order in the kitchen and just fearlessly executing it. Um, it's the word fearless keeps coming to mind. I, I feel like you've had this real sense of adventure and this sense of fearlessness and just moving from one thing to the next, being super curious. Do you realize that about yourself? I don't think of myself as fearless. That's not an adjective that I, I would put down if you asked me for a list of like five. But a lot I, of these things took, yeah. took a strong sense of fearlessness. <laughs> I have... Um, the, the career piece of it is really walking through doors that people have opened for me. You know, the opportunity to, to work on Madison Avenue. I, I didn't have a portfolio. I didn't have any experience. But someone opened that door. And I said, you know what? I'm going to walk through that door. Someone opened a door for me to get a job at a Michelin restaurant. So I said, I'm, I'm going to walk through that door. And I didn't think about it. I, I don't think about it as being fearless. I think about it as taking advantage of an opportunity that typically comes out of left field that I, I haven't calculated or work towards or could ever really foresee. So it's kind of surprising, but why not? And just go and do it. And I think from just a very young age, because, you know, we move so much and we did so many different things, um, you know, there's just sort of a matter of factness to it from one point of view. It's like, well, you're moving, you're going to a different school and, and that's what that is. So 
you don't have a choice sometimes in doing these different things. So I guess you do things maybe that are hard or that are challenging without even necessarily realizing them or putting that description on them because it's just like, okay, that's what we're going to do. But then later, there are times perhaps where maybe you make a decision to say, I'm going to do this, it might be risky, or I'm going to do that, or I'm going to stand my ground. And you just sort of bite down and say, well, let's get it done. You know, handle your business and get it done. But so it's maybe more like pragmatic or matter of fact versus fearless. Because I don't, I don't think of myself necessarily as a big risk taker because I haven't calculated the risks. It's not like I'm going to create this new thing and come up with a product and go on Shark Tank and pitch it and do all these things. It's just sort of, so, you know, Jennifer, do you think you'd like to do this? Yeah, maybe I would like to do that. I'm going to do that. Sure. That's an interesting definition, though, where you say you don't think of yourself as a risk taker because you didn't calculate the risks, Yeah, but you were still a risk taker. Perhaps. <laughs> One of my other rules is I will talk to anybody once. Just hold on. Which, which number rule is this? I'm not <laughs> sure if I've written them all down properly, but I think that's rule number six. Repeat yeah. that one. I will talk to anyone once. That's nice. I don't know if I would say the same thing. Well, you know, someone calls you with a, like a proposition or a thing or you want to do that. I'm like, sure, I'll talk to anybody once. I'm thinking more of like when strangers approach you on the subway and you just sometimes would rather run screaming. Mm. Uh, Yeah. But, you you know, sort of you can like side eye listen to them. (laughs) You can listen to them with your peripheral hearing and with a little side eye. But no, that in general, that is uh, always, I get, you know what? I guess I do have that rule. Always take the meeting. Exactly. So exactly. Talk to anyone once, always take the meeting. And then that feeds into one of my other favorite rules, which is you have to give action to get action. You have to give action to get action. That sounds like a sexy rule. Could be. You have to give action to get action. Explain that. Well, it's sort of like you have to spend money to make money, but it's more, it's, it's not purely financial. It's energy, opportunity. You want to talk to somebody, well, you, maybe you have to talk to somebody else first. You want to be on a show where you, maybe you have to do something else first. If you, you know, it's, it's, a, it's the same family of you can't win it if you're not in it. And momentum is your friend. Objects in motion will stay in you motion. It's like that these, kind of thing. You're filled with all these good things. <laughs> I, I, I feel like your Instagram account needs to be filled with those, all those uh, just like, motivational sayings. Yeah. Get, get on one of those <laughs> illustrator apps where it's, I just turn all my photos into inspirational things. Exactly. I have barely talked to you about technology. Aren't you? Can you tell how I've barely scratched the surface on technology with well, you? And that's what your show actually, is all about? But, you know, to, to be fair... I did say at the beginning that the tech angle was incidental. It was, that was calculated to fill a niche that they didn't have. So your regular listeners will know that you start every show talking about apps. You go around the room and, and ask people what their favorite apps are, the apps they use the most. Um, I know you chime in from time to time, but, but let's ask you some app questions right now. What is your most used app? My most used app. It's probably my email app or my texting app. Okay. Communication. Actually, it's probably the same answer for everybody. Give us a few of your most used apps. Instagram, Apple News app. Um, I like that very much. How uh, did you program your Apple News app? What's, what are your media sources? New York Times, Washington Post, Bloomberg Reuters, uh, BBC, uh, MMA, Mania, uh, UFC, Sports Illustrated, ESPN, 
uh, Muay Thai guy. There's a whole like combat sport area. Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> MMA. So are you into that? Yeah. You, I didn't know that about you. you. We have never had the Muay Thai combat sport fight conversation. Uh, I thought you were about to say we've never had the Muay Thai combat Muay Thai. skills fight. My, wait, how do I you say it? You can come say and it again? train with me. I, don't, I can't even say it correctly. Tell Muay, Thai. Me. Muay, Muay Thai. Muay Thai. Very close to Mai Thai. Okay. <laughs> did I say Mai Thai? I think a I A lot did. of people do. So. How I could you... go for a Mai Tai after this. Yeah, really. <laughs> Mai Tai's on me. Two Mai Tais right now, please. Yeah. Um, how did you get into that? I went to Bangkok on a culinary trip with my then boyfriend, now husband, and he was cooking at a fancy international chefy thing. And the host took us to the Muay Thai fights at one of the big stadiums in Bangkok. And there were, we sat in the very, very front row. I was probably the only Western woman in the entire place, definitely one of the only women in the place. And if you've, ne- if you've never been to a Muay Thai fight in Bangkok, they're amazing. I mean, even just as a cultural experience, they have food, they're betting, they play live music while they fight this very odd um, sort of, you know, traditional music. And Muay Thai is the national sport of Thailand. It's been around for centuries. It's basically, um, imagine uh, Western-style boxing. You're standing up, you have boxing gloves on, but you're barefoot because in addition to the traditional punching, you can knee people and you can elbow them and you can kick them anywhere. Anywhere. face, body. So they call it the art of eight limbs because it's hands, elbows, knees, and legs, feet. So the thing about the sport in Thailand is that they start fighting and training when they're very small, five years old, six years old, seven years old. So when you get to the big stadiums in Bangkok, which is like Madison Square Garden, it's the pinnacle of success, you'll have maybe 10 or 12 fights on a card that night, and they start with the smallest, lightest amateur, and then they go up to pro. So you're watching kids who are like 10, who weigh maybe you know like 70 pounds, 80 pounds, fight, and then the pros... Maybe they're like in their mid-20s and they kind of top out like around 100, 110 pounds. And they have, this, uh, they have this, these traditional dance and prayer rituals that they do before they fight. Um, the Y crew and the Ram Mui and they come out and they're wearing these super colorful silk shorts and they have a headpiece on and they're wearing flowers and they're playing the traditional music and they're doing this dance in the ring, which is like beautiful and mesmerizing. And then they take the you know the flowers and the headpiece off and the bell goes off and then they go in and then they start fighting and it's just it's so brutal and like devastating but also beautiful because of the music and it's graceful and all that kind of stuff and the thing it's exhilarating but the thing that i really remarked on is that thai people these people the fighters they're small like 5'10", you know, 95 pounds or 100 pounds. They're, they're, they're thin. <laughs> I'm 5'10", fi- and I'm definitely they're not 95 small, pounds. small, but they're graceful and they're super strong. And I thought this is a great sport for a woman because you can be small and graceful, but you can be strong and just like devastating. And so they have all of the uh, gear shops at the stadiums. And when we walked out of the fights that night, I bought a pair of Muay Thai shorts. And I was like, I'm going to learn Muay Thai. So I came back to New York and, you know, it took years for me to kind of actually do it. But then I found a trainer and then I found a gym. And so I've been doing it for a few years now. And then once you sort of get into that, 
Then there's, you know, watching boxing and other combat sports. And then Muay Thai is part of, you know, one of the martial arts that then compromises the MMA, which is the mixed martial arts. So then you sort of delve into this world of, you know, combat sports and and different things like that. So you have so many layers to you, (laughs) Jennifer. Okay, we have a few minutes left. Uh, So we got some app talk in there. Um, How has tech changed the restaurant world? It's there so many ways. It has changed everything from what businesses are viable. It has changed the way the critical and review system works on a professional level. It has made every single diner and person in the world a critic and given, you know, sort of the popular voice a a real power over who is successful and who is not. It has, um, on the one hand, you know, made the community, uh, the professional restaurant community, like, small and accessible to everybody because of Instagram and social media. It's also created a flatness where everybody's just going to make a cronut because that's what we see. And I may be... You know, the, the first the first imitator of the cronut was, you know, a couple weeks later and it was the Korean it was a French Korean bakery, the Perry Baguette chain. They were the first ones to make it because they saw it on Instagram. It has created, you know, chefs want to cook food that look good in photos online. You know, do you make a f- uh, dish popular because it looks good or because it tastes good? Um, it makes it harder to find people, makes it easier to find people. I mean, it has just really, really changed it in so many ways that I think um, it's, on the one hand, it's created a sameness and a flatness um, because everybody's copying and chasing the same success or the same things. Um, But on the other hand, it's made it easier to discover things that are really unique or things that are different and that we would never have heard before. The upshot is that I think people really care a lot more and are extremely more interested. So you have more people and voices and dollars and things like that that are interested uh, in food and chefs and and the restaurant world. It just, I I think it just hasn't quite equalized itself yet in terms of the realities of the restaurant world meeting up with the demand and the wants of consumers. And I think that we're reaching a uh, sort of a, a collision break point, tipping point soon when those things are going to have to sort of implode a little bit and then realign. And that'll all happen on social media. Stay tuned. But tech will never replace the human touch. And no. I think about Mm-mm. you as a young woman in the kitchen in Paris back in the early 90s. You're, I, I would imagine nobody can chop an onion like you. My onion skills are pretty good. Um, what I learned there more than anything is that I actually have a really good palate and I have a, a good ability to taste ingredients within something and my skill set was that I could recreate that. Um, and then you learn the feel of the thing, the feel, the smell, and the sound of it. People, um, if, you're, if you're a home cook out there and you, you want to learn how to sort of become a better cook, yes, follow the recipes and all the instructions. But you know, if I'm toasting uh, quinoa to make a quinoa, I know when it's ready by the way it smells before I'll see it or hear it, you know, or I'll know the pan is hot because I'll hear the oil. So utilize all of your senses. And if you can kind of hone all those together, that'll make you a better cook. 
And it will be a very long time before tech can replace that. I don't think it, it, it can't. It can't. The thing that's interesting is that most of the tech in the, in the world that we talk about on this show is ultimately some way to get you to the best real life experience. All the tech we talk about is how to find it and have it in real life. So uh, to wrap up here, why don't you tell us what your listeners can uh, anticipate in the, in the next 100 episodes of Tech Bytes? The next 100 episodes. So if we go at the same pace, that'll be, we'll be having uh, episode 200 probably sometime in 2019. Oh my God, are you going to come back? I, I would love to <laughs> come back. You should totally come back. Let's make a date. Okay. Um, oh, <laughs> oh Davey scared me. <laughs> so what would you like to achieve in the so next 100? I'm uh, becoming increasingly interested in having Tech Bytes be a uh, connector and a facilitator. And you're going to be seeing a lot more episodes with um, startups who, you know, have a, a product for kids and, and the thing that they really need to get them to the next level is to have a focus group with some kids. So we'll do that. Or the company, the, the woman entrepreneur who really needs help with like marketing or PR. So we'll bring in a PR person or um, I really would love to meet, you know, this person or that person. So much of the tech space is about advisors and influencers, but also uh, the community of kind of helping, I think. And that makes it much more interesting when you try and solve a problem together on air or you walk through actually experiencing something. I think that's a m much more unique conversation for people to listen to versus this sort of straight up like tech founder interview you're going to read in Fast Company or, you know, anywhere else. So look for more um, connect connected episodes. Look for more mentorship episodes. Um, and we've been doing increasingly as time goes by, maybe as a reaction to, you know, what has happened in the world of politics, um, maybe as a reaction to just, you know, what we see in life. But we have more and more episodes, women in tech, women in media, you know, lots more women. <laughs> well, Jennifer Leuzzi, congratulations on your 100th episode. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me in to host, uh, to guest host today. <laughs> David Tadashore. Well, all right, Dave, you can cut that. All right, thank you. <laughs> Everybody gets the point. Um, Jennifer, thank you. You are the bomb. Thank you. And tune in today at 1. Listen to Carrie. Yes, we have some great uh, guests today. And uh, thanks for listening. And thank you for the invitation to be here. This was a blast. I'll see you in episode 200. Bye. listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. 
Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.